Hey, just before we jump in, let me tell you about something exciting that's happening in the life of our church. We have been working to train up a new group of lay elders that will be serving this body. Uh, an elder in the life of Jesus' church is a high calling to provide oversight, direction, discipline, to protect the doctrine and the life of the church. And so we've been doing some training and preparing, and many of you have heard about this as it's been ongoing. And we have four elder candidates that I want to make sure that you've seen and know their names. So this is Blaine Killian on the left, Luke Carlson, who is just leading us in worship. Thank you, Luke. And then Taylor Howard, who is also leading. We're thinking maybe you guys start a band called The Elders. I feel like that would be cool. Um, and then Tyler Ballou over here on the right, who many of you know, who's been serving as director of equipping. These four men have been prepared, and we are presenting them to this community and saying that in two weeks, the intention is that they will be ordained and installed as elders in the life of our body. But this is the time that if any of you know any reason why they ought not serve in that role, we want to hear that. One of the calling of elders is that they should be above reproach. That doesn't mean perfect, but it means they should have an excellent reputation. And everyone in the life of the church who knows and interacts with these men should be able to nod and go, ah, yes, I would gladly follow this man's lead, his care, his provision. If that's not the case, or if you have some concern about one of these men, I would love for you to come talk to me or to one of the elders over these next two weeks because we're really excited to take that next step, but we don't want to do it rashly, and we want to give you an opportunity to speak into the process. So with that being said, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dig into the scriptures together. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you are a delight. You are the source of our exceeding joy. And that your call on our life, the things that you model for us and that you command to us, that you invite us into, they are not a duty, they are a delight. And that when we as a faithful people walk with you in the world, it is for our joy and for our good. And so I pray this morning as this word about the nature of rest confronts us, confronts our culture, confronts our natural inclinations. I pray that we would not receive it as an interruption, but as an opportunity, as an invitation, that you would help us to be the sort of people that can, can cease and be whole. So would you speak? We believe that when we open the Bible, you open your mouth. And so with anticipation, we prepare ourselves to receive. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Allergic reactions are kind of a, an odd thing, if we could be honest. They can be funny. They can be scary. Allergic reactions are this thing where our body is convinced that something that it is encountering is actually bad for it, even though it's not. My wife, kind of on the funny end of the spectrum, is allergic to bananas. And if somebody slides a banana into like a dessert or a smoothie or something that she's not expecting, sometimes I'll catch her doing this, like where she's trying to, it looks like she's trying to itch her brain. You know, she just can't quite get there. And she's like, there must have been banana in that. And without feeling like, oh yeah, sure enough, they slipped a banana in on you, you know? For me, it's cats. If I go to Papa's house, I got to steer clear of Callie because if I spend too much time with Callie, my eyes are red and I feel like I just can't catch my breath. It's kind of like, I'm not a cat guy. My body is convinced that it's bad for me. Um, on the scarier end of the spectrum, we have a neighborhood that had a shellfish um, 
allergy that was life-threatening. If he ate or touched or handled shellfish, his body would swell up, he wouldn't be able to breathe, and if something wasn't done immediately, it could cost him his life. You know, we have these varying degrees of allergic reactions to things, things that in and of themselves may actually be good things, things that could contribute to the health and the joy of our life, but our body is convinced they're bad for us. As I've been preparing and studying, reading, praying over you, one of the things that that I've grown convinced of that I want to posit at the outset is this, that in our global, urban, technological culture, I think we're allergic to rest. I think our body has like a reaction to it. That it's, it's something that's not bad for us. In fact, it's really good. It's necessary. It's crucial for you and for me to be whole and to be human. But we have grown convinced. It has kind of crawled into us. It's snuck in from the back that we are, we are threatened by rest. I think part of it for me, if I could just be honest, why I get so fidgety and uncomfortable, I look like I'm having a, a reaction when all of a sudden I'm not productive or when I have to put my phone away and I can't get to my email or I can't feel like I'm doing something in the world. I think it's because my busyness makes me feel important, if I'm honest. Like in an economy of supply and demand, if there's a, a growing supply for a limited demand, it feels like my time is becoming more and more valuable. I'm more important. There's not enough time in the day to do all the things that I need to do. And as a result, like a drug that all of a sudden causes me to be allergic to what's good for me, when all of a sudden I set it aside, it's, I, I can't handle it. I'm oftentimes fidgety or I can be I can be short or angry because I'm just out of my skin, the idea of laying it aside. And I've begun to realize in my own heart, I'm asking God to continue to do this work to convince me and to convince us of what is true biblically. That, That if we are going to experience the fullness of what it means to be human, we've got to learn what it means to stop, to shut it down. To be able to cease and to rest in a holistic, God-honoring sort of way. And if it's true for us, it's even more true for the original audience of the text that we're studying this morning. The original audience that was receiving the book of Genesis was in the wilderness. Uh, Moses was providing God's word from having spent time with him in his presence. And these people that for 400 years had been slaves... They had spent their whole lives making bricks, thinking if I don't make enough bricks today, I'm going to get a beating because the taskmaster is watching, making sure that I've done enough. And not only did they do that, their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents, they had no conception all the way down to their bones of anything other than striving is what's going to make everything okay. The idea of rest was not within the concept of life for these recently freed Israelite slaves. And into that space, that space of making more bricks, make more bricks, to the point where these Israelites probably began to feel like the bricks themselves. Interchangeable, unimportant, my name or my identity, I just exist to build the empire. Stack one on top of the next. And into that space... God models something and teaches something radically different. He's trying to help his people understand what does it mean to be human? 
What does it mean to be whole? What does it mean to be free? And into this space comes the glorious, radical, divine rest of God that he's going to model and then invite his people to inhabit. And it's into that space that I want to invite you together with, uh, with me on this journey. I want to invite you in, knowing that God is inviting us into a place of finding rest for our souls so that we can be whole. My argument from this text and from the whole of the scriptures this morning is this, that you have to cease in order to be whole. You have to be able to shut it down to know what it is to be fully human. And so let's see if we can explore that together today. The verses that Luke read over us are the climactic moment in the creation story. This is it. We made this note last week, but the creation of humankind at the end of chapter one is not the climax of creation. The climax of creation is chapter two, verses one through three, when God is in rest, when he stops. The word for rest in Genesis two is the word Shabbat, from which we get the term Sabbath. And Shabbat literally just means to stop, to cease. Everything just hits pause. That God is saying, I'm, I'm going to stop in this moment, and it's a display of his glorious character that he is resting, and all has been created is very good, and is continuing to exist from his glorious provision. Let's see it again. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 2 says this, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. The host of them, some think, is either the angels, because the angels are frequently referred to as the host throughout the Old Testament, or all of the stars and all that has been created in the cosmos. Regardless, what God is saying is that all has been created. Everything is finished and good. And it says on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he Shabbat, he ceased on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. You see, we need to establish this at the front end. God was not tired. He's not worn out going, whew, all that speaking worlds into existence just has me sweating and needing a little breather. Everybody give me some space. No, this is a climactic repose. This is a king whose, whose reign is beautiful and perfect. He is simultaneously providing for the good of all that has been spoken into existence, and he's doing so in the the imminence of his glory. His glory is radiating from, him, from him, radiating from him, and he sits back and he rests. And in that pose, the God who is sustaining all that he created while at rest is displaying who is as glorious as me. His rest is not a rest of exhaustion. It is a rest of glory and goodness. And what he is doing is he is providing the ideal picture for his people. God and his people together at rest. Do you feel it? Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day. They went to bed and they woke up and they're like, what do we do today, God? And he's like, today we rest. You rest with me in the beauty and the glory of all that I have done. That is the grounding of your existence. Their first day in existence was resting in God's good provision and care because he is the glorious one on the throne. You see, this, this sort of rest that God is modeling that is being spoken over these brick-making Israelites in the wilderness is a distinct and a profound opportunity to enter into sacred time with God. To enter into moments that God is, is meeting his people in and reframing their identity, their understanding of themselves. That is what is happening in the seventh day. 
as we will see in just a moment in verse 3, it's not that God is inactive on the seventh day. His rest doesn't mean a total lack of activity. It doesn't mean laziness. But what he is doing, the verbs that are attributed to him, are that he blessed and he made holy. He is actively blessing the seventh day. It's a word that's shown up a couple of times already in the Genesis account. And to bless is distinctly linked to making fruitful. He blessed all of the the animals that were made and then he blessed mankind and said, be fruitful and multiply. The blessing of God allows fruitfulness to emerge. And then he makes holy, which means set apart. It's a different sort of thing that's happening in these moments, God is saying. As I rest in all of my glory, as I bless all that has been made, these moments look and feel different than everything else. Holiness literally means other. So in Genesis 2, 3, when it says this, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. What God is doing is he's modeling for us the opportunity to cease and enter into sacred time with God. A different sort of time, a different sort of moment. Uh, let me read to you. My, my good friend Blaine Killian handed a book off to, to me s- several months ago by, by uh, Joshua, or Abraham Joshua Heschel. He is a Jewish professor and thinker that died years ago. He wrote a book in the early 1950s simply entitled The Sabbath. And he talks about this idea of entering into sacred time with God. Let me just read you a few quotes that I think get at the heart of what is happening here. He says this, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. There is no reference in the record of all of creation of any object in space that was endowed with the quality of holiness. He says, six days a week we live under the tyranny of things, of space, but on the Sabbath we try to become attuned to holiness in time. He goes on to say, he who wants to enter the holiness of the day must first lay down the profanity of clattering commerce, of being yoked to our toil. Six days a week we seek to dominate the world and on the seventh day we try to dominate the self. You see, what what Heschel is getting at is that God meets us uniquely in time. Time is where eternity is breaking in. He, He in another place says, Eternity, or pardon me, time is just eternity in disguise. It's in the present moment where we're touching what God is doing in all times, that these are the moments where God will meet us. What we need is not a sacred space, some blessed area, like we need a beautiful sanctuary or a mountaintop or a lakeside in order to meet with God. What we need is precious, sacred time set aside to meet with God because that's where the eternal breaks in, in moments and space that's created for him, an architecture of time. You see, we have the opportunity, as, as God is modeling this for these Egyptians that have worked themselves to the bone, what he's beginning to show them is that there is an ongoing divine reality that they can taste. Did you notice that there was something noticeably absent? Okay, if we've just been reading straight through Genesis, there's something noticeably absent from the first three verses of chapter two. Did you, did you see it? Each of the days of creation, one, day one, day two, day three, something doesn't happen on day seven that's happened on every other day. Did you hear it? It does not say there was evening, there was morning, the seventh day. 
There's a lot that's been written about this as commentators wrestle. It's, it's obvious that it's intentional by the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that something is different about the seventh day. It, it very likely means this, that what God is, what he, what he is communicating is that his rest is without end. That there is no end to the seventh day in God's economy because he is at, at repose in the fullness of his glory and, and he is in utter control from this point forward. And he's going, there is no end to this day. There is no end to my rest. It's not that as the sun went down and the sun came up, God had to get back to work to, to kind of tweak everything and fix everything. It's, no, my, my seventh day at rest in all of my glory is now my perpetual holistic state. Your rhythm of setting aside time regularly and weekly to enter into that space is your ability to, to enter into sacred time with me, to enter into the presence of my glory and experience the fullness of what is always the case. I am holding everything together. For our friends that are Jewish and actively keep the Sabbath, they prepare for this weekly. Friday afternoon is an activity of bustling energy. It's, it's preparation. Because it takes energy and effort and planning to rest. They're scrambling about getting to the market and getting food and preparing so that they can have the meals prepared and they can be at home with family. And as soon as the sun goes down on Friday till the time the sun goes down on Saturday, they're gonna feast together. They're gonna talk and read the Torah. They're gonna sing. They're gonna rest. And by the, by the time the sun goes down on Saturday, they will have entered into those sacred moments with God. That was the design that God established in the old covenant for the people. And as, as Christians, we don't have a strict adherence to a seventh day rest. We're gonna talk some about how this develops throughout the scriptures. It's not that that's our commitment as strict Sabbatarians that from the time the sun goes down on Friday to the time the sun goes down on Saturday that we don't do anything. But what this text is inviting us into, and we're gonna see this played out throughout the scriptures, is to begin to realize that God is beckoning to you. He's inviting you, he's going, listen, all of your striving is leaving you tattered, exhausted, feeling subhuman. And here I beckon to you and say, I've established a rhythm in the world that if you will cease and you will make time, like make extended time, not, not a space, not, not particularly that you have to be in one particular location or doing one particular thing, but will you make the time to enter into my glory and be reminded of what it means to be human? And as we together wrestle with that and make that commitment, what we will see is this, that there are two primary things biblically that happen in that space. If you cease and you enter into sacred time, two things will happen that will help you to be whole. You with me? I want to explore those two things by looking at the way that God applies this text to his people. The first we find in Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bible, I want you to have your, have your finger there. And I just what God has modeled on day seven, he then commands to his people. What he's modeled, he commands. And he commands them to enter into it and he grounds it in his own creative work. In essence, he's saying, because I have created everything and I sustained everything, you really can rest. This is the way that he says it in Exodus 20, verses eight through 11. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So God made it holy and he's inviting his people to keep it holy, not to, 
not to mistreat or to demean something that God has set aside as other and beautiful. He says, six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Do you see it? What what he has modeled, he is now explicitly commanding and he's rooting it in the fact that he's the one who created everything. The first thing that happens, the first thing that happens when you choose to start making time to really rest in God is that you begin to realize you don't hold it all together. When you cease, you are, you are speaking back into your soul. You don't hold everything together. And I don't know about you, but that's a word that I need to hear weekly. <laughs> when, I, when I cease and I lay aside my cell phone, my email, when I, when I try to hit pause and create space to be remade and to be made human, the reason I get fidgety and angry and out of my skin is because underneath it all, I think, well, if, if I don't do this, everything's going to come undone. It's all on my shoulders I have to continue to manage everything. This is why we lay awake at night and why we eat the bread of anxious toil is because we have begun to believe the lie that God in all of his glory isn't providing for everything. Me and all of my effort is providing for everything. I'm the one that has to manage all the details and hold it all together. Take care of my children and the work and the, the, all of the unspoken and unexpected things. I have to think in advance so that nothing catches me off guard and it all comes off just as I intended. And all of a sudden we live in this really tight, you ever feel that way? Like I'm just, like, and God's going, stop it. Like literally stop. Take a deep breath. You don't hold everything together. That our ceasing actually creates space to work down into our bones that, that we don't have to buy this lie anymore. We oftentimes participate in a charade all week long that we are the central character in our story. I am the hero of this story. The story is profoundly about me. That's the story that we're writing. I am this hero and I'm writing this story. And we start to play the charade. We start to act like it's true and it shows up in our anxiety and our intensity and our unwillingness to rest. And God's going, take a deep breath. I made everything. I'm at rest and by my glory, I'm providing for everything. Let's stop the charade. It was never about you. And I'll tell you, in order to, to do this well, it requires thinking deeply about your, your spiritual thumbprint. To begin to rest and to meet God in sacred time, you have to start learning, how has God uniquely made me? How do I interact with him? How am I delighted by him? Um, once again, Abraham Heschel says it this, this way. He says, it must always be remembered that the Sabbath is not an occasion for diversion or frivolity. It's not a day to shoot fireworks or turn somersaults. But it's an opportunity, I love this phrase, it's an opportunity to mend our tattered lives, to collect rather than dissipate time, labor without dignity 
is the cause of misery. Rest without the Spirit is the source of our depravity. What he's inviting us into is is learning our thumbprint. He says, remake your tattered lives by engaging in a rest that is full of the Spirit and it's allowing you to experience wholeness again. I was a very miserable person to live with about 12 years ago. I had no boundaries, no rest, and I was always like this. My wife was gracious and kind to me, but quite frankly, I was, I was always sick, I was unhealthy. It was not good for her or for me. I was not fun to live with. And as we began to bump into the realities and the honesty of the scripture that God has made us to, that the way we will experience the fullness of humanity is to learn how to stop. And we've established a family rhythm that from Thursday night to Friday night is intended to be for, for me and for Ashley a, a time where it's different. It's, it's, there's some rest involved there. And that has remade me. That has allowed me to start to experience some of what God has designed. Obviously, Sundays are not my day of rest, and so we've set aside those, that, that time. And it's simple things. We spend time with people that bring us life and encouragement. We sit up a little bit later on Thursday night, typically. We talk and um, we, we, we share about the week. Sometimes we'll stay up late enough even to watch a little Jimmy Fallon. We laugh together. We just start like, whew. I'm not answering my cell phone, not responding to email. And the idea is that by the time you wake up Friday morning, I, I sleep in a little bit. I go and eat with my kids on Friday. I take them, take them uh, food at their school and hang out with kids. This week I was sitting in the little palm court, the intro, introduction area, and I was watching seventh graders practice their backflips. And I was talking with them, betting them how many they could do. And right, there was, there was laughter and there was joy in this space. I, was, I, was being, I went for a long run. I studied the scriptures. I prayed, I read a good book, and then I just sat in a chair ha! for 20 minutes. I wasn't praying, I wasn't reading, I wasn't trying to produce anything to God, I just sat there. And you know what starts to happen? It's like you get dethroned. Because while I'm sitting there, the world is still spinning at about 60,000 miles an hour. People are being cared for. Everything that I'm convinced that I carry on my shoulders, God's like, yeah, it's all still happening, by the way. Because I made everything and I sustain everything and it was never your responsibility to hold the world together. You see, when we cease, we start to become whole. The The first reason is because it convinces us we don't hold it all together. Now, There's one other interesting thing that God does in applying this for us because there's another telling of the Ten Commandments that Moses does to the next generation after they've been in the wilderness for 40 years. It's a telling of the Ten Commandments and he he works through the Ten Commandments and he applies the Sabbath to this next generation but he grounds it in something different. It's very interesting. In Exodus, what he tells the people is, listen, God holds everything together. He created it all. That's why you keep the Sabbath holy. Then in Deuteronomy 5, to all of that generation's children that have been raised up in the wilderness, this is what he says in Deuteronomy 5. I want you to pay attention to how he grounds the command here in verses 8 through 11. He says, you shall not make, uh, pardon me, 
Deuteronomy 5, where am I? Yep, 12, verses 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. So far, it's the same. Six days you will labor and do all of your work. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is with you in your gates, that your male servant, your female servant may rest as well as you. Okay, that's all the same. But then... Moses veers off course into a different territory. In verse 15, what he says is this. You shall remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. He's given them a whole other reason why God has said to keep the Sabbath. One is that you're not the creator. You don't hold everything together. The second is this. You're not a slave anymore. You're not a slave. He's grounding the Sabbath command in this reality that he's saying, listen, it is not by your striving and your effort that you are gonna make everything okay. I want you to remember this. This is a generation that hasn't spent their whole life making bricks. They have been freed by the power of God and walking in the desert. And it would be so easy for them to forget their heritage that, listen, for generations, we have believed that we could, we could make enough to be okay. And what he's going is going, listen, don't forget your past and recognize that you are not a slave. This is not your identity. It's not who you are. Every day, every week, when you, when you enter into sacred time, you and your family mark out sacred time, which the invitation is to have extended period. It might be that we're right in the middle of it for you. This would be the intention for Christians all around the world is that the, the first day of the week as we worship, we're reminding ourselves of what God has done. And the idea is that you enter into rest to convince yourself and your family and everyone under your care that we have nothing to earn and we have nothing to prove. We aren't slaves. One of the ways we've tried in a very simple way to work this into the rhythms of our home is that on Saturday night, prayers are offered for each of my boys. And it's just a simple, trying to help us at a soul level to believe what we're doing together. And we pray, God, thank you that tomorrow we're gonna wake up and we're gonna go worship. We're gonna be together with the church, which is our family whom we love and we pray for and who prays for us and we're part of. And we're going to worship the living God together and we're reminded that you have accomplished all for, good, for, for our, our salvation and our wholeness. That we are not slaves and our ability to be welcomed by God is not dependent on what we do. You see, we begin to prep our hearts for entering into sacred time with God. Preparing for it in advance so that when we step in and as we start to explore it and experience it, it's reminding us of, of the very things that God has gifted us with rest for. You see, we have to cease in order to be whole. As we cease, we come into a, this sacred time that is convincing us we don't hold everything together and we are not slaves. And the beauty is that that, that true line that runs through the old covenant as you flip the pages into the New Testament, finds its fullness and its beauty and its expression in a way that we could never have fully imagined. As Jesus steps onto the scene, he ruffles a lot of feathers by calling himself Lord of the Sabbath. 
The religious elite does not like this. The Sabbath has been twisted and turned into something that is a religious duty that has to be done in an exact way. And Jesus steps in and says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. My father and I are still working in the midst of our rest. And for that reason, he heals a man with a withered hand. And he heals a man born blind on the Sabbath. And in fact, it was those good deeds done to those men that contributed to him ending up on the cross. The religious leader said, you're a lawbreaker and you deserve to die. But interestingly, as Jesus was laboring, even on the cross, bleeding and dying, supposedly for one of the, the sins that was, that was leveled against him was as a Sabbath breaker. That as he was bleeding and dying on our behalf, he proclaimed, it is finished. And the proclamation of Jesus of it is finished over our lives was a, a word that I have completed the work. There is nothing for you to do. It has been done. And as he completed that work, it's interesting, it, it went dark from noon to three. The sun had gone down. It had grown dark. It was right around the time where all the Jewish people in Jerusalem were scurrying about getting ready for the Sabbath, the Shabbat. They were preparing to rest because it was 3 p.m. on a Friday when Jesus finally gave up his spirit and people are scurrying about getting ready for the, the sun to go down that evening. Jesus was quickly wrapped and prepared and buried as the sun was going down and as all the good Jewish people went back and they rested. And as they were all ceasing, Jesus was waging war on their behalf. He was fighting against death, against Satan. He was conquering our great enemies. And when the sun came up the next morning, or pardon me, on, the, on Sunday morning as the Shabbat had come to an end, everyone realized that it was while I was resting that the one that holds everything together with a mighty outstretched arm was setting me free by his good work. And so we, we arrive at this reality as the sun rises on a new creation in Jesus that we are a people that we worship on the first day of the week, not the last day of the week remembering what Jesus has accomplished for us and that rest is our first order of business. Your week started at midnight, you know, like last night your week clicked over on your calendar and you were slobbering on your pillow, dead to the world, and your week began. And you woke up to this reality, Jesus standing over the whole of human history saying, I have accomplished all for righteousness sake. The first day of your existence, rest with me. Celebrate my glory and my goodness such that all of your work in the world would be emerging from your rest, not working towards your rest, but working out of your rest that Jesus has accomplished all for you. You have nothing to earn. You have nothing to prove. You don't hold it all together. And it is our current trust in Jesus that allows us to enter the perpetual seventh day rest of God. As we, as we trust in Jesus, we, we step into the rest of God that that carries us along in the midst of all of our work, that once a week we set aside time to enter in and be reminded of who we are, and one day, brothers and sisters, we will enter a forever rest, the sort of rest where the sun never goes down on it. In fact, God says in the book of Revelation, the sun is no more and God is their light because it will never be dark again. All that the people of God will know is endless rest in God's presence because of what Jesus has accomplished. So where do you just need to stop? Like where have you pressed so hard thinking that what you produce is what matters most? 
working your fingers to the bone, fidgeting, unwilling to rest. Listen, turn your gaze upon Jesus and cease. Because when you cease, you can finally be made whole. Let me pray for us. God, would you forgive me the things that I call urgency and diligence so often is faithlessness. Forgive me for that. I pray that we would be found faithful, that we would work diligently, we would be urgent and zealous in the ways that you call us to be, but I pray, God, that we would not transgress the natural rhythms that you've created for us, that we would be a people that know how to cease to trust your goodness and your provision. I pray, Jesus, that you would unleash a a beautiful work of the Spirit in this family, that we would be a family that understands how to rest in a way that restores us, that remakes our tattered lives, and that us being a people who are are souls at rest would speak a a better word to a world that has been run ragged. So we love you. We thank you that you've provided rest for us and pray that we would live in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.